0: Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. This episode is sponsored by eBay. eBay is one of the world's most vibrant online marketplaces for jewelry and fine timepieces, reaching 183 million buyers worldwide. One piece of jewelry is sold every two seconds, and there are on average 165,000 live luxury watch listings every day. Visit ebay.com to shop, or ebay.com slash sell to list your jewelry or watch. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will talk about Lightbox and Blue Nile, the Argyle Mine, and New York City's Jewelry Week.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski. I'm dialing in from my home office in Los Angeles, and I'm with...
2: Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online in temporary suburban exile.
1: Yeah, I forgot to mention I'm editor-in-chief. It's all a blur today. I might be forgetful. I didn't get a lot of sleep. We're recording this on the day after the election.
2: Yes, and it's... uh...
1: I assume by the time people are listening, we'll have a a confirmed... (laughs)
2: Maybe not.
1: There's a lot of nail biting going on and a lot of sleeplessness. But yeah, we can focus on the great distraction that is the jewelry industry. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I do want to mention is I'm in the midst of your book, Rob, and I'm so enjoying it. And in fact, what I wanted to do last night as the results were rolling in and everybody around me was stressing out about what was happening – I was like, I'm going to go into my room and read a Murderers Forever.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you.
1: All right. So a totally genuine, heartfelt plug for Murderers Forever. So let's let's switch gears. I know there was some big news last week. This was the very end of October, right before Halloween. And Lightbox, De Breer's lab-grown diamond subsidiary, had a big announcement. Why don't you tell us about it?
2: Yeah. So Lightbox is going to be selling its products over Blue Nile, which is a very interesting partnership for them both just simply because Blue Nile does not necessarily do a lot of fashion stuff. It's more of an engagement ring place. When I talked to the CEO of Blue Nile a couple of weeks ago, he pretty strongly signaled that he was going to be going with Lightbox, which he ended up doing.
1: Is it Blue Nile's first lab-grown diamond brand?
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's interesting because I think a lot of people were wondering, would Blue Nile get into lab-grown because their competitors have James Allen and Brilliant Earth? And so far they've resisted it. And I assume they're worried about some of the things that traditional retailers are worried about, about cannibalizing their main product, about the long-term kind of value proposition of lab-grown diamonds. I was actually kind of surprised because I did think as a tech company, they would jump into it and they have, but they've done it with Lightbox, which is strictly a fashion brand. And it's actually, it's pretty significant in that it's the first time in 20 years that they've sold lab-grown diamonds I guess they've made a little bit of a statement by going with Lightbox, which I think in certain sectors of the industry is considered the anti-lab-grown, lab-grown company. Just because some people, you know, it's obviously it's owned by De Beers. Some people feel that it's trying to drive the price down with its $800 carat pricing. Some of the messaging that they've given out that they think it's solely a fashion product rather than an engagement product. When they launched it, one of the things they said is, we think of this as a product that you won't uh, feel bad about losing at the beach. People kind of thought that was a little bit insulting. Though I'll tell you, I do have a one carat lab grown light box diamond and we gave it to my mother-in-law and I'm not sure whether she has it, but I'm not really worried about it because it's like, it's just a different value proposition. Like if that was a one carat natural diamond, I would be all nervous. Like, where is it? You know, I will say, you know, you can say what you want about Lightbox. I do think that for all the criticism people have of it and for all the ways it makes people uncomfortable, it is a genuine attempt to differentiate the product. It is a genuine attempt to start a brand. And I think it's actually a pretty well thought out brand. Blue Nile is kind of the ultimate uh, showcase of that is the fact that you can just go online and choose for millions of diamonds and price compare and it becomes a race to the bottom. And you're seeing the same thing with lab-grown diamonds. They're not differentiated, all the sites. So it's interesting, and we'll see how it goes. But Blue Nile, I guess, thinks of this as a long-term thing. And I think they're happy to use De Beers' financial resources to help promote the product and promote themselves. So
1: the thing is you know i recall when lightbox first debuted in 2018 and you you know you wrote a lot about this distinction between their positioning versus how other lab-grown manufacturers were positioning their product as a bridal piece and I feel like the market still, it's such mixed messaging. I went to see Mark Patterson, who's a very well-known, fine, high- level luxury jeweler, has a retail store in Corona del Mar, which is a beachy enclave right next to Newport Beach here in Southern California. He also does a strong wholesale business, has been around for thirty five years. And he told me that his retail business is like through the roof this year, even with two months of closure, they're at about double their sales for 2020 compared to 2019 but he also said that they're really selling big diamonds. And he also said that he had his first two lab-grown bridal ring sales this year. And he had never sewn lab-grown before, but felt like this is a year where you don't say no to people. So here he is selling 5000 know, $5, $8,000 lab-grown diamonds in beautifully set rings. And it makes my head spin when what we hear from Blue Nile and Lightbox is these are not bridal rings. These are fun fashion things that so, I mean, I still feel like two years later, there's no clarity on where those diamonds sit in the marketplace.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, Lightbox's position is basically its own. There's no other player in the market really putting out the messages they're doing and stressing that position. And, and that's undoubtedly because it's connected to a mining company. But I do think their position is this is where this will end up. Mm. You know, a lot of people think it's trying to force it into this box, which I mean, I think there's some truth to that, but I do think that they believe from a business point of view, this is where the product will end up. This is where we see the business opportunity and we want to be the first to get there. I think, first of all, that messaging about not being for bridal, that's mostly a trade message. That's not necessarily, if you look at the light box advertising, there's nothing any seller of lab grown diamonds would get necessarily offended by. I think a lot of their trade communications have upset people. But on a retail level, they definitely promote it in a positive way. But I think in general, I think that's an issue. I just did a survey on on lab-grown diamonds. And one of the things that came out from retailers is that we are confused. We don't know how to sell these. We don't know what the terminology is. We don't know what to say. And because the industry is so fragmented... And so many different players, and there are a little mixed messages, like, you know, the FTC says don't call it eco conscious, and yet people do it all the time. So there are a lot of mixed messages. People aren't a hundred percent sure how to sell it and how to compare it to the natural diamonds, how to compare it side by side. So that's something that has to be kind of figured out.
1: Yeah. I also wanted to ask or at least bring up this other big diamond story that may be more of a historic story, but whether or not you see it having any consequences for the market today. But the Argyle mine in Western Australia just closed. It closed on November 3rd. The last truck of diamond bearing ore rose to the surface, we're told, after 37 years, closing up shop. And that certainly was a big deal for the, maybe one of the biggest deals for the industry when it came online and when Rio Tinto began marketing those goods independently. But What do you make of the closure and what does it say about our industry today? What does it portend?
2: Well, I think you look at some of the financial difficulties that some of the mining companies are having, like Dominion in Canada, and uh, certainly you're starting to see what has long been forecast is that diamond supply is going to start to drop pretty dramatically. One interesting thing, you know, we were just talking about lab-grown diamonds, in a way, what came out of Argyle was looked at in a negative way by the industry originally, same way Lab grown diamonds was. They were considered quote unquote near gems, something that that's inferior and brown and ugly. And what Argyle did was created this whole market for these kind of lesser quality goods because mall stores, mall retailers could sell them at a price point to middle class Americans. So it opened up this whole new segment of the market and it, quote unquote, democratized the market. And it certainly fueled the expansion of the industry in India. So it's it's certainly possible that we'll see less of those kind of lower end goods on the market. And that's certainly a huge opportunity for lab grown to take over that space because, you know, when you're dealing with a price point item, you can get a lot more for your money with a lab grown. Again, most lab grown companies aren't really that interested in the fashion space right now because they see bridles where the big opportunity is. But certainly down the road, you could certainly see that lab-grown diamonds, because they are a lot more affordable than natural diamonds, because at that price point, it's a lot about the look. You could definitely see a huge opportunity for them there.
1: Yeah, what what's wild about when I when I tell friends who aren't in the business what I'm writing about or working on or thinking about when I try to explain argyle to them, it, I find it so interesting that this mine that the vast vast majority of its massive supply of diamonds was these you know near gem brown inexpensive goods, and then yet of course all the attention it gets, all the media hype is around the tiny supply of pink diamonds and also violets and reds and blues and grays that it produced. It produces 90% of the world's pink diamonds. And of course, those are also going away. And from what I understand, and maybe you know this, I don't think they entirely understand why pink diamonds are pink, where that color comes from, but it has to do with, I guess, some sort of damage or defects they sustain on their journey to the surface, which I think is also the same mechanism that gives brown diamonds their color. It's fascinating to me that these two products couldn't be more different. And yet, ultimately, it's the same mechanism that is responsible for their color and how they're formed. And of course, you know, we're going to have the Argyle pink diamond tender that happens every year. It's still on track for 2020. I think bids close December 2nd. There's the Spirit of the Rose diamond. I want to say, is it 14 carats? It's an El Rosa pink diamond that's being auctioned at Sotheby's on November 11th. So there's so much in the news that feels very relevant to what's happening in this industry. I find it fascinating.
2: Yeah. We've both been to the pink tenders. I mean, they're amazing and you see amazing diamonds that sell for amazing amounts of money. And that are extremely rare that you just you just don't find. You know, some of them are, are just beautiful. It is weird. And I, I think it's also weird that Argyle kind of specialized in diamonds on both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. In that they produced all these brown diamonds for a while. They marketed them as champagne and now they're marketed as chocolate. But they also produce these extremely high-end Pink diamonds itself for millions and millions and are just breathtaking. And not, it wasn't just pinks; it was reds, it was blues. You know, you get a occasional green. I mean, just like really amazing colors. They're expensive, and you don't want people to buy them necessarily as an investment because that's extremely difficult. But certainly, a lot of people expect them now that Argyle's no longer producing them that long term they will they will hold their value to some extent. And there's people who collect them, and they're extremely beautiful things to collect. They're just so rare and so striking.
1: You know, on our cover three years ago, July, August issue of 2017, 2.83 carat argyle violet. The GIA cert had it grayish, bluish, violet. You know, it was like really the longest description of a color I'd ever seen. But the owner, LJ West, named it the argyle violet. And it is really, if you look back at that cover... It's mesmerizing. It's just so rare. I think violet diamonds are an order of magnitude rarer than pink, which are already so rare. I mean, that word is so loaded in our industry. It's used so often that it kind of loses its meaning. But when you encounter a violet diamond, no less 2.83 carat violet diamond, it takes your breath away because not only is it rare, it's gorgeous. So it's not just some weird thing that the earth spit out. It's this weird, beautiful, utterly incomparable thing.
2: Yeah. And, you know, getting back to the light box, they make blues and pinks, but there's these like kind of festive colors and they're really nice, but it's not the same as something that comes from the earth and has a, a different kind of gravitas and a different kind of feel to it and look to it and wait to it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I was reading some of the descriptions of the Argyle tender stones that are in this year's tender. And, you know, one is I'll read you now because the description is kind of great. One is a 0.43 carat princess shaped, fancy, deep grayish, violetish blue diamond. Another one is a heart-shaped, fancy, dark gray-violet diamond. There's another one that's a violet-gray diamond, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, just to name these colors and what violet precedes gray, gray precedes violet. Obviously, the GIA has its nomenclature, but oh, my God, the nuance here. And that kind of nuance you don't find in lab-grown. They're all the same, same. They're produced with the same formula, the same process, and nothing wrong with that. But yeah, the earth, everything it yields is pretty unique.
2: And one of the interesting things that Argyle does for those diamonds is give them names. And apparently there's a whole long list of names that they use. And, you know, you're not necessarily required to adopt one once you buy it, but... It became kind of a big part of marketing those diamonds is coming up with some of the cute names for what they call the hero stones, kind of like the big stones.
1: I'm looking at a list of names for this year's ones, the Argyle Eternity.
2: Mm -hmm. That's a good one.
1: There's an Argyle Ethereal, an Argyle Sakura in honor of the cherry blossoms of Japan, the Argyle Emrys which I don't even know what that would be. The Skylar and then the Infinite with an accent on that final E. So yes, you're right. I'm sure that's fun too, coming up with the name. Yeah,
2: yeah. Seems like they kind of reached the end of the thesaurus there and were yeah. straddling a little bit, but yeah, they're, they're cool names, you know. And it kind of, I think it adds to the mystique of the stone that it has this fancy name. So,
1: yeah. And I'm told, I guess this isn't even the last tender because there will be another tender based on 2020 production. So the mine has closed, but that's not all.
2: Yeah. And it's going to take five years apparently to tear it down because they have to do all this reclamation stuff. I mean, like all mines, it's a huge hole in the ground. So it's going to take a, a little time to return the earth to the uh, inhabitants. But I think it was a good boost for their local economy. And it played an incredible role in the culture of the trade. Just, you know, it was one of the first companies to sell outside the beers. And that kind of led to the kind of traditional cartel structure dissipating. And as I said, produces small diamonds, which opened up a whole new landscape for the business. So in historical terms, it's a hugely important mine. It has a huge legacy and it will leave a hole in the business.
1: Yeah. Well, 15, 20 years from now, I'm sure we'll be having a different conversation about this. But I did want to mention, for those of you who don't have this on your calendar, New York City Jewelry Week, it's the third annual Jewelry Week. It kicks off November 16th, runs through the 22nd. And for the first time ever, you don't have to be in New York to enjoy all and attend all the events. They're all virtual. If you go to nycjewelryweek.com and go to their events tab, you will see, honestly, some of the most incredible programming I've ever seen in this industry. You've got jewelers, brand representatives, designers, retailers, retailers authors talking about their books on jewelry. They've got seven themed categories to help people, you know, figure out which which of these sessions they want to sit in on. Apparently something on the order of 120 events going on throughout the week. Obviously a lot will overlap. So you'll have to make your decisions, but really the founders who Bella Naiman and JB Jones, who started out three years ago in 2018 with their inaugural jewelry week have really grown and built this into quite an organization One of the biggest components of it is called Here We Are. They describe it as a platform to shine the light on underrepresented categories in the jewelry industry. So a big focus, of course, on people of color, black jewelers, but also minorities, women, transgender. I think any category that has maybe not gotten the light shown on it. And that's run by an empowerment speaker named Elliot Carlisle that the founders of New York City Jewelry League brought on last year. You know, there's a great deal of programming around that Here We Are platform, but there are also all kinds of other categories exploring every topic of jewelry you might be curious about. So I'm just looking here at the website at random. Silvia Fremontovic, a Brazilian jeweler with an incredibly artistic vision, will be talking about her choice of unusual materials and her sustainable influences there's going to be the author, Melanie Grant. She's The Economist's jewelry editor and wrote a book called Coveted About Jewelry. She's going to be in conversation with Steline Volandis from Town & Country Magazine about jewelry and how it transcends this category of fashion There's honestly, it's so hard to even choose anything to talk about because there's so much great programming. But I just urge anybody who's listening to this to check out that website and find, you know, one or two or 10 sessions they want to join that week because there's no barriers anymore. I think they're using a number of different platforms between Zoom and YouTube. There's a platform called Discord that's meant to be a little bit like Slack where you can keep up to date with things. And so all that stuff is available on their website. And I think they've just done a really remarkable job of wrangling all kinds of disparate voices in this industry, pulling them together, getting them in conversation and I think it's going to be pretty great. I think it elevates this whole conversation. I had a really nice talk with Sally Morrison, who she's been with many, many brands over the years as a publicity and PR executive, and now she's with De Beers promoting natural diamonds and she's gonna be on a I think a sustainability theme panel discussion, and she had this great few words about why it's so important this year. And you know, of course, we've seen jewelry be a lot more resilient than we anticipated this year. But people still are buying jewelry and still going to stores and buying gifts of love and meaning. And I think when the jewelry industry bands together, like it's doing with New York City Jewelry Week, it just promotes that message and gets people talking and thinking about jewelry in a way that you know, they otherwise wouldn't wouldn't necessarily. And so I think it's all good. And Sally made a point that this is the moment because when people start to travel again, and when that window of opportunity narrows for jewelers, you know, they're not facing competition right now from, you know, their biggest competitor in years past travel and experiences. And so you seize the moment. And I think the industry and with Bella and JB's wonderful coordination and help is really seizing the moment. So I urge you all to to take part.
2: Yeah, it's a really nice event. And one thing I wonder about events like this, as you say, they're being made available for streaming. Will that at some point become the norm, you know, that that you would have the live event and the streaming event?
1: You know, I think... That's what I hear from everyone, including our own colleagues at JCK events, at Reed Exhibitions, who are, I think, planning some kind of hybrid model for JCK Las Vegas 2021, where it will be both online and in person. And I I think that's great because, honestly, I I miss the in-person, and I'm looking forward to getting back and seeing people and having a drink and chatting. But I think for people who've never attended these kinds of shows... Why not give them an opportunity to attend digitally? And then maybe you get excited and actually decide you're going to attend in person the following year. But, you know, it's a real low barrier to jump online for a day of programming or buying or whatever it is you want to do virtually. I think it just whets your appetite for doing the real thing.
2: Yeah. What I like actually about New York City Jewelry Week in particular is that it kind of straddles the line between trade and consumer and there's always a lot of students obviously discussing important topics but also discussing them in a way you know letting consumers enter the conversation and letting consumers understand a little bit more about jewelry and what it takes to produce and the issues of sustainability and things like that
1: yeah completely it's all good it's like what a positive turn of events we've had so much stressful, painful news this year, why not celebrate jewelry and hear people talk about it insightfully? And they've really thought through jewelry on every level. You know, I think what you come away with when you really study the schedule of events is how deeply meaningful jewelry is on every level to humanity, to the economy, to people's individual stories. It is not a superficial bauble. It is really important.
0: Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District, brought to you by eBay. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.